This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. One of the world's biggest sporting events is over with Argentina beating France 4-2 in a penalty shootout to win the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. It's dominating international headlines this morning. Here in Australia, sorry, football is making news for all the wrong reasons. After chaotic and violent scenes forced officials to abandon a weekend A-League match between Melbourne Victory and Melbourne City, Isabel Masali prepared this report. We are going to have, the referee has called for both sets of players to leave the field of play. And this is entirely, entirely unacceptable. As spectators rushed onto the pitch, assaulting players and match officials, former Socceroo and Channel 10 commentator Bruce Chitte was shocked. I just couldn't believe it. I, honestly, I, I, I can't believe what, I could not believe what I was seeing. That's, that's how it felt like being there in that moment. I was absolutely stunned. Bearing in mind, I played all around the world, watched thousands of games. Um, that was just unbelievable. The violence erupted during a protest over the decision to move the A-League Grand Final to Sydney for the next three years. Melbourne City goalkeeper Tom Glover was left with a concussion and severe lacerations. A referee and a camera operator were also injured. Freelance sports journalist Joey Lynch says it's quickly become an international disgrace. The images that we saw, particularly the, that picture of Thomas Glover, blood pouring from his head being carried off the field by his backup, Matt Sutton, it really was an image. This absolutely has put Australian football on the global map for all the wrong reasons just a fortnight after it was on there for all the right reasons. Football was enjoying a boost in popularity just weeks after the Socceroos' inspiring World Cup campaign. But as Australia prepares to co-host next year's Women's World Cup, this is one of the game's most shameful moments. And now this is going to dominate the discourse surrounding Australian football for the foreseeable future, discussions around violence and is football a safe place and these hooliganism trends and these views of hooliganism that the game has worked so hard to shape. There's no way to spin this. It's damaging. It's, it's awful. It's, it's, it, and, and, and it has to be condemned uh, unequivocally. That's Francis Awaratifi, the chair of Professional Footballers Australia. The former Socceroo says he's confident the football community is strong, though it's in mourning right now. It's a sad, it's a really, really sad moment for the game. And, uh, but I'm, I'm heartened by the way that the game has come together at all corners of the game and not just people within the game, but from outside the game. And we all come together as a community to really condemn what's happened and to, you know, make it in no uncertain terms that these the small minority of people, they don't belong to the game. They've not had anything to do with the game. They've just come into the game to cause havoc and that they're identified and that they're rooted out, that these people are never, ever to see the inside of a football stadium again, uh, no matter what. As Victoria Police investigate and Football Australia warns of strong sanctions, including possible life bans for those involved... Francis Awaratifi hopes lessons will be learnt for future game security. Isabel Masali reporting there. 
A high-stakes United Nations summit's underway in Canada, trying to agree on a blueprint to stop and reverse nature loss. A key part of this particular meeting is a draft agreement to protect 30% of the planet's land and water by 2030. The Federal Environment Minister, Tanya Plebisek, is taking part in the talks and she joined me earlier from Montreal. Tanya Plebisek, thanks for joining AM. I understand that you've been arguing the need to strengthen the language around this draft document. So far, it says that countries should reduce extinction rates by tenfold by 2050, but there's no target date for 2030. Are you disappointed by that? Look, we're still negotiating the final document, and I think it's important to say that Australia has high ambition when it comes to protecting nature. I mean, we agreed recently that the world is going to move to net zero. I think we need to agree that we're going to move to nature positive as well so that we have a net zero nature positive world. We think that the document that has been circulated has some really good elements, uh, but we believe that it needs to be more ambitious in some respects. So we've got a domestic target of protecting 30% of our land and 30% of our oceans by 2030. We think that should be a global target. We think we should have a, a target of zero new extinctions. And, of course, uh, Australia wants to see this done in strong partnership with First Nations peoples. We'd like to see those domestic ambitions reflected globally, and that's what I've been arguing uh, throughout this conference. I think it's really important to say that Australia has been playing a really positive role in negotiating this final agreement. We've really gone from environmental laggard to leader on the world stage. And one of the examples of that, uh, I guess, is the um, higher ambition statement. We, we worked up with Norway uh, a statement to give stronger protection to our oceans. That's been signed on to over the last 24 hours by 37 other countries. So it's just an example, I guess, of the kind of positive role Australia can play globally. Delegates had also hoped that governments would make it mandatory for big businesses, multinationals, to disclose their impact on the environment. But observers say that's been watered down. What's Australia's position on that? Look, the, the language around that is a, a little more ambiguous than you'd like, but there's still, I think, a, a strong uh, argument there that businesses should be disclosing their impact on nature. And uh, I think that's you know, it's important to have that in the document. We certainly uh, are working through international um, organisations to have consistency around the way that businesses describe their nature-related risks. And uh, we think there's a lot of business interest in doing that. I mean, their customers demand it, their investors demand it, even their staff demand it. And that's one of the reasons that we're setting up our nature repair market in Australia we know that there's a lot of interest from business in, um, you know, being transparent about their impact on nature and looking for a way of uh, reducing the negative impacts that they might be having on nature. Are there particular countries that are pushing back against strengthening these agreements? Uh, look, I, I don't think it's productive at this stage of negotiations to start naming Name names. shaming. Um, no, no. I, I, think, I think it's fair to say that Australia is one of the group of countries that is pushing for high ambition, uh, things like 30 by 30, uh, things like zero extinctions, making sure that we've got really strong indicators of our progress as well, making sure that we can transparently track how we're going. 
all of these are things that Australia has been arguing for. We're in very good company in making these arguments. There are obviously some countries that are saying that this is too hard, but you know, my hope, my hope is that they'll come on board for an ambitious agreement to nature. As I say, we managed to agree to net zero in Sharm El Sheikh. What we'd like to see out of this conference is an agreement that we've got to halt the biodiversity loss we're seeing and reverse it and be living uh, in a nature-positive world by 2050. In Australia, it's estimated that we need to spend over a billion dollars a year to protect and restore nature. Are you able to quantify how much the Commonwealth spends right now per year to do that? Well, it's not just Commonwealth spending that's important. Of course, I mean, we increased uh, our spending in the last budget. We've got $1.8 billion across the budget years to invest in nature, but state and territory governments play a role, uh, philanthropists play a role, business plays some role, and again, we're hoping that they'll play a bigger role as we establish our nature repair market. But look, you know, the, the absolute truth is, of course we can do better in Australia, and that's our plan, that's our intention as a government. That's why we've already increased environmental funding. And in doing better, should people have expectations that there'll be a significant increase in spending in the May budget next year to reflect, you know, what you say is important work? Well, we already saw an increase in the October budget, and we are determined not only to increase government funding, but to make it easier for others to invest in repairing nature as well. The, the last uh, report we saw on the interest from business in investing in a nature repair market is businesses prepared to look at around $137 billion worth of investment in coming decades in nature repair. This is becoming as important for businesses as reducing their carbon pollution. We've got to make sure that all of our investment is effective so that government investment, both state and Commonwealth investment uh, and you know, pr the private sector philanthropists, we can work together to make a real difference for Australia's natural environment. Tanya Plebisek, thanks for talking to AM. It's a pleasure, Sandra. Thank you. And Tanya Plebisek is the Federal Environment Minister. Fiji's two main political rivals are locked in talks to try and clinch a deal to form government. There was no clear winner when the final election results were revealed yesterday and it could be weeks before an outcome's known. Marion Farr reports from Suva. At a Sunday church service, Sidavini Rambuka's supporters sounded jubilant. But the main opposition leader doesn't have the political outcome he wants just yet. When the final results from Fiji's national election were revealed yesterday, there was no clear winner. Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama's ruling Fiji First Party gained 42.5% of the vote. A coalition between Mr Rambuka's People's Alliance Party and the National Federation Party won a combined 44.7% with neither side gaining an outright majority, they'll need the help of the Social Democratic Liberal Party to form government. NFP leader Biman Prasad says the coalition is deep in negotiations with Sidelpa. We are confident uh, that uh, the negotiations uh, will be concluded uh, as soon as possible and we are optimistic that uh, we will be uh, forming uh, the next government 
He says the three opposition parties are ideologically aligned. Uh, we believe that this country um, urgently needs um, a, a united, stable, uh, well-functioning government. But Sidelpa leader Bill Navoka suggests a deal is far from being clinched. It's still very much work in progress that we understand the, the gravity of what is required and we'll do it with due process. We are not rushing this. We have got 14 days to do it. It needs to be done properly. Uh, but I can assure you that um, the outcome will be the best for this country. Mr Navoka says he'll use his powerful position as kingmaker to advance the interests of Indigenous Fijians. Our base is the, uh, the Indigenous people of this country and the issues has always been paramount with us. And when it comes to foreign affairs, he has a clear vision. I know the Solomon Islands have, have gone out uh, a bit and have done the security thing with the, the Chinese. We won't do that. We will go with our traditional partners, Australia and New Zealand. A new government won't be formed until the next sitting of Parliament two weeks away. That'll mean an anxious Christmas for Fijian voters like Judy Compain, who are eager to know who will lead the country. We hope that Sadelpa will choose wisely. Fijian voter Judy Compain ending that report by Marion Farm. The Northern Territory government's hoping it can stop a crime wave in Alice Springs by taking children who were found repeatedly roaming the streets at night to a centre to be assessed for neglect. However, many of the kids out in the streets say there are plenty of reasons they don't want to be home. Jane Barden prepared this report. After police were forced to close the Alice Springs town centre twice last month because stolen cars were being used to try to ram their vehicles head on. Stop, police, stop! Stop! The kids they picked up were aged between 11 and 13. Some too young to go to police cells had to be taken home. But police say many were back out on the streets within hours, committing more crimes. So the Territory Families Minister, Kate Warden, hopes her new strategy of taking kids found repeatedly roaming the streets for child protection assessment will be a circuit breaker. We have an intervention uh, which is around care and protection of children to make sure that we can take those young people into a safe environment. So why are these kids out committing crimes? Many say it isn't safe at home or there's no one to look after them. We're protecting the identities of these 13 to 17-year-olds by not naming them. Because at home you've got nothing to do and there's not really family to look after. You know, families be busy on Krog and, you know, there's no one else to look after. Parents just drink around. They don't worry about kids, they just worry about their own way. Many say they and their friends have ridden in stolen cars, helped smash up shops or steal things following older friends or through boredom. I've been in one, but it's really bad. I've been in one and there was, they did crush into a um, riverside. We feel ashamed when we see our siblings in stolen cars and breaking in. We feel ashamed. They just want to spoil the town. Steal car and they steal work and money. Parents like Roxanne, who know their kids are out, feel unable to control them. My kids are just running a while in the street. It's really hard to control my kids. Police say to some it's a game, 
But assistant teacher Kira Voller, whose brother Dylan's treatment prompted a royal commission into youth detention abuse, says she knows many of these kids well. She puts their behaviour down to disengagement from society. Like, they're beautiful kids. They've got so much respect. It's just that this town doesn't respect them and see them as human beings. The NT government is promising its justice response will be backed up by more youth diversion and family support programmes. But Kira Voller is among those who think the $9 million annual budget for these programmes is only scratching the surface of what's needed. There are not enough people that are talking to these kids in the way that they need to be spoken to. Like, no one's that support person that can teach them that actually you do matter and your life in five years does matter and you can contribute to your people and to society in a positive way if you stay in school, if you learn, you know, and if you stay connected to culture. Assistant teacher Kira Voller ending that report from Jane Barden and Matt Garrick. South Australia's Riverland is preparing for a flood peak that could hit as early as this weekend, but further downstream, low-lying areas are already facing flooding. The town of Bow Hill is all but empty, and most of the riverfront shacks are inundated. However, as Angus Randall reports, those who remain are doing what they can to keep the community spirit alive. Shane McGrath is one of the few permanent residents in the tiny riverside town of Bow Hill, 90 minutes east of Adelaide. Usually our town goes from about, I would say, 30 locals living here to, you know, up to 3,000, 4,000 people here when it's flat out. Bow Hill is a popular holiday town, but this summer most of the rental properties are inundated by water from the flooded Murray River. Shane McGrath's been checking on some of them and giving daily status reports on social media. So the river has risen again. I'll just show you in a second, take it for a bit of a wander. So initially uh, um, a few people asked me just to go past their shacks and to see how they were going and send any photos or videos. And as um, I did that, more people were getting on board. And now the good thing about it is people can actually see what's happening and then they can come up and, and just do a little bit more work on their shacks. He says kayaking through flooded backyards comes with its own set of challenges. Initially, we couldn't kayak down the road, but you can actually kayak down that road now. It is daunting when you uh, come across a, a basketball ring where, where it's only eye height now. The flood peak in Bow Hill isn't expected until the new year. Shane McGrath's house is safe, and with the town unlikely to be cut off, he's even hosting Christmas this year. It's fantastic for uh, my grandchildren to see the river in flood. Um, it's something that I've never seen. And I keep telling people at the end of the day, it's, we put our houses on the river and it sometimes happens. His neighbour Melanie owns a holiday home at Bow Hill. She's also unlikely to be flooded but has still cleared out for the summer. It's sad really because we're part of the 10 shacks out of the 160 at Bow Hill that are least likely to go under and a lot of our friends obviously own shacks at the riverfront and at the front so it feels a bit of like survivor guilt almost, <laughs> that we're part of the, the few sitting at the back. You know, we've joked that, you know, because we're set back now, we're, we're riverfront now. We never thought we would be able to afford riverfront, but we're riverfront now. Once the peak is reached, the floodwaters are predicted to take weeks to recede and Melanie says it'll be a while before Bow Hill is back to normal. We're going to lose lots of infrastructure. We're directly across the road from the boat ramp and the public area and um, the war memorial. And, um, yeah, all of that infrastructure is already starting to erode even without any boats and things going past. So there's going to be a massive clean-up. The flood peak will hit the Riverland from Saturday. More than 1,100 properties have been inundated in South Australia so far.
Angus Randall reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.